Hi, I'm Sophia. And I'm Andrea. Welcome to the Tiny Morbid Fantasies podcast. Tiny Morbid Fantasies are involuntary, subconscious thoughts that flash through your mind. Sometimes referred to as the call of the void, these intrusive thoughts can be disturbing or inappropriate. Thoughts like driving into oncoming traffic or jumping when you're standing near a ledge. You know you would never act on them, but for some reason, they cross your mind anyway. This podcast showcases our collection of short stories based on those thoughts. In addition to our stories, we would like to hear your tiny morbid fantasies. Spoiler alert, mass hallucination is not a real phenomenon. It does not exist, at least not as depicted in popular media. Regardless, it is a term bantered about by both sides in many skeptical debates. Today, we're going to break down the mass hallucination theory and find out why it often surfaces as the go-to excuse for the unexplained. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. You've heard these lines before. The light is playing tricks on you. You're just imagining you heard moaning. You only think you saw what you wanted to see. And it all boils down to a common thread. An explanation for an unexplainable event. You experience the apparent perception of something not present, which is the simple definition of hallucination. As we have many times before, we delve into a bit of semantics and dueling definitions. Mass hallucination as a term has become a hot-button issue in the modern world of paranormal and supernatural experience. As I was researching a few topics, I kept running across the random form questions Do mass hallucinations exist, or some variant thereof? It's a reasonable question. People hear the term used as explanation for some weird event or another all the time. It's synonymous with terms such as delusion, illusion, and mirage, and used interchangeably in conversation. But what was interesting is that these questions weren't being asked about experiences had by single individuals or small groups. It was in regard to the sort of events you might call mass sightings. I became as curious at learning the answer to the question. More pointedly, are people really going around claiming that hundreds, even thousands of people, are having consistent, correlating hallucinations? This time, I'm joined by guest host Jason Charbonneau, creator of the fascinating YouTube channel Think Anomalous. As you will see... I reached out to Jason for very good reason, and I think you will enjoy it very much. So let's get to it. Welcome back, theoryologists. I have with me this evening uh, a special guest, a guest co- uh, guest host, uh, Jason Charbonneau, and. This is actually a, a, a very interesting opportunity how this came about. Um, 
And Jason, thanks very much for coming for coming on and joining me for this session. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, this episode on the topic of mass hallucination. And as I had started working on this and doing some of the initial research on the background of, of mass hallucination, the concept of it as a phenomenon uh, and as a reality to explain various events, uh, I uh, came across multiple sources as I typically do and intended to to reference quite a few and, and we would uh, have a kind of an expansive understanding. But lo and behold, I came across a website with a very well-written article uh, specifically on the topic of mass hallucination. And not just that, but it was right in line with the background discussion on the topic that uh, that I had hoped uh, to to outline myself. And it really got to the point of, of, of recognizing that I would just have to sit down and, and work through this article point by point or or quote it verbatim in order to to get the idea across to you. And that just that seemed um, well, that seemed to not do it justice because uh, this site, which is known as thinkanomalous.com, uh, was really just a, a platform site leading to a lot of additional content. So I reached out to Jason who is uh who is handling this and um asked him first at you know at the bare minimum if he was comfortable me with me referencing as much of his his uh article as I was thinking I would need to and in the off chance if he would be interested in in coming on board and and onto the podcast and helping with this discussion well fortunately for us he was more than eager and willing and while we with a little bit of uh, uh, scheduling changes and, and accommodating, um, actually a very eventful weekend <laughs> for him. We uh, we were able to get together and get this organized. I think you're really going to enjoy this. So let me first introduce to you Jason Charbonneau. Now he is a an a now Emmy nominated foley artist. He's a writer, amateur film producer. And of course, the creator behind Think Anomalous, which is uh, a growing and very interesting YouTube channel, along with the thinkanomalous.com website associated with it. Jason, thanks for coming on board. Whew, you've been busy. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, you know, uh, as as my listeners know, this is not an interview podcast. Uh, I do not have a lot of, of guests and when I do, it's because we're going to have a discussion. I really like the ideas that you presented in the article. But before we get into it, I wanted a chance for them to be more familiar with your work. Uh, so if, you, uh, if you'd like to tell us a bit more about Think Anomalous. Sure. Um, well, I've been interested in UFOs for maybe about 10 years now. Um, I kind of got into them right before starting a, a master's degree in history. And I'd kind of pursued it as a, you know, a side interest for a while. Um, and then I kind of uh, bailed on an academic career. I was going to be a, a history professor is what I was training to, uh, to do. Um, but I ended up taking an audio production course here in Toronto, Canada. Um, and we actually had a class on digital culture. And this uh, very forward thinking teacher who encouraged everyone to uh, embark on some sort of digital project. Uh, and one of the suggestions was to make a YouTube channel. I didn't have any experience with that um, at the time. 
but I started my own channel, UFO Case Review, uh, which I did kind of on an amateur basis for about two years. Uh, made, I think, 20 videos, uh, which I'm, I'm now remaking some of them. And then uh, I took about six months off and kind of had this idea for a, uh, a broader channel. I wanted to explore uh, not only UFOs, but all anomalous phenomena, because at that point I'd become convinced that the explanation for UFOs, um, in order to explain UFOs, you had to really look at other anomalous phenomena and the similarities with other anomalous phenomena. So I wanted to kind of explore UFOs in context. Uh, so I had this idea for a channel called Think Anomalous, which I started about three years ago now. And um, I've been trying to increase my output all the time, but I currently do a video about every month, every two months. Uh, they take the form of short kind of miniature documentaries. Now they're usually about 20 minutes each. And each time I, I typically pick a certain case, like a, a UFO sighting, a mass UFO sighting, or a, you know a fairy sighting from the uh, 18th century. Or sometimes I'll just kind of look at certain fields of research like reincarnation research uh, or parapsychology and uh, just give uh, viewers a, an introductory um, kind of um, approach to a subject. But I also go into considerable depth and I really pack a lot of information into my videos. Uh, so I think they're, they're useful to, to beginners on any subject and also to experts on any subject. I, I agree. And that's what I was going to say when you talked about an introduction is, is they are, they're very in depth. They're informative. I, you know, I, I stopped what I was doing when I first started researching this and, and found a site and of course jumped to YouTube. And I got to use the excuse that I'm, I'm doing research for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why right. I got to just sit down and watch YouTube yeah. videos. But, uh, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that, that you, you are still based in, uh, Toronto. That's right. Um, and, uh, so there you go, listeners, we are officially international. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, those of you all that know that I'm, uh, as y'all know, I'm in Texas. So Canada is very, very far away. So we are, um, we are definitely expanding in the, in that idea, but, but that's the great thing about this. And, and, and your channel is, is very much for, I think a very broad audience. It, I, I know that, uh, for those of us that live and breathe these topics, that thoroughly enjoy understanding them, knowing the stories, uh, this it does it, it definitely is a basic level introductory sort of uh, of uh, content for you on these videos. I don't assume any prior knowledge. Like you don't have to know <laughs> something about the subject in order to watch my video. I I will start from scratch. I'll go quite deep on a subject, but I will start from scratch if you've never heard of it before at all. That's a great way to describe it. And and for um uh for reference, those of you at the time of this recording recording, I believe the latest video is the Hudson Valley UFO incident. That's correct. Um and and that's great. It very much does take it from that point of you have no idea what that me what that is and when that took place and what that's even talking about. Um, and then move from there. And in fact, I was very familiar with it and I think I learned something, uh, some additional information. So it was very good. Um, the production quality is, is impressive. The, uh, it, it's the content is informative. It's enjoyable to listen to. So, uh, the listeners absolutely go hop over, um, Instead of all of the other stuff that you hunt down on YouTube, thinking almost, and uh, it's it's tremendously informative, and you'll see uh, again if you haven't figured it out by the end of this episode, 
uh, why I think it was such a benefit to have Jason come on board and, and uh, talk with us today. All right. Well, let's get into our topic. Uh, really, I think the, the key to, to start off with is mass hallucinations. You know, the, the first thing that we need to do in, in discussing this topic really is to define it. And you had an excellent, I thought, an excellent uh, definition on your article. Uh, if you wanted to uh, introduce us to really what mass hallucination is. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the definition that I use in my article is mass hallucination is basically the theory that collective observations of anomalous phenomena can be explained by positing that all witnesses experience the same or similar hallucinations at the exact same time without any physical stimulus being present. So it's, it's, it's like a hallucination in every way, except that it's shared between a large number of people. That is, to me, spot on. That said everything that, that, that I wanted to say. And then, of course, you know, the, the challenge is that it, it doesn't actually exist, which is something that you pointed out. You know, having that, that definition, the idea that everybody is seeing the same thing and is having a hallucinatory response to something occurring or that is not occurring but believed to be occurring. As we'll get into, uh, like you alluded to, it's itself an ambiguous definition because it's a topic that doesn't actually, you're defining something that, that does not occur. And maybe the, the, uh, the uh, uh, best way to say that is that it has never been a confirmed or validated as an actual phenomenon. When you were, when you were working on this and your article really dives into it, what was it that you were looking into or what came to mind when, when you started uh, to research and look into mass hallucination as a phenomenon? That's a good question. Um, basically, I, when I first got interested in UFOs and when I first got into you know arguing with people about whether UFOs were real or not, um, I, I got really wrapped up in um, arguments from debunkers, uh, or you can call them skeptics. I don't like to call them skeptics because I think I'm a skeptic as well. Um, but people who want to debunk topics, uh, debunk anomalous phenomena, you, you frequently hear uh, wh when they're trying to throw explanations out to explain away some event, uh, typically they'll start with something more mundane like, oh, well, uh, if they think they saw a UFO, then um, you know, they must have perceived it incorrectly. Uh, maybe they needed glasses and they didn't have their glasses on. But then you'll say, well, the witness wasn't wearing glasses or didn't need glasses. They had perfect vision. And then the debunker will say something like, oh, well, they were misidentifying a star or something of that nature, and you'll say, "Well, no, you know, no stars were visible at that at that um, quadrant of the sky." And then they'll eventually get to, "Oh, well, they must have had a hallucination." At which point you'll say, "Well, but there were multiple witnesses." And then, as a last ditch effort, they'll throw out the mass hallucination theory. Oh, well, the it must have been a mass hallucination. <laughs> so it was just from you know having experience coming up against that that brick wall. Yeah, it's this term I use in my article because it's really just impossible to go around. When somebody throws mass hallucination in your face, what are you really supposed to say to that? Yeah, I always um, think of it as as it's moving that goalpost, right? You're just moving right. it back more and more until it comes up with that brick wall that you can't get past. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, so I really wanted to interrogate that. I, you know, I, I heard that a lot. I think I'd probably use that term myself. You know, at one point, uh, and I eventually thought, well, I should really look into this. I mean, is, is, that, is that a thing? We all know that hallucinations um, occur and that hallucinations could explain some UFO sightings as well as other anomalous phenomena. Um, but I really didn't know anything about the scientific basis for mass hallucinations. And of course, as I quickly discovered, there just is really no scientific basis for such a thing. 
Right. Well, see, and this is you've you've said exactly the 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 same sort of scenario, which is precisely what got me thinking about the topic. I mean, beat for beat, almost verbatim, that exact same scenario. That is a conversation that everybody comes up with. This is actually a very commonly used argument uh, right. to very specifically debunk and stop a, a conversation to dismiss an experience uh, and to discount uh, the possibility of validation of, of some sort of an event, some mm-hmm. sort of phenomenon that's witnessed by more than one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, uh, theoriologists, if Jason wrote this article back in 2016, um, and and so I really did make him have to go back and stretch through the memory and, and figure out, review this stuff and come back on and 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 go current on this. So uh, absolutely, he was ahead of the game on this and thinking about this, uh, you know, long, long before a lot of people in podcasting were even talking about it, definitely exploring it from this perspective uh, in relation to these sort of things uh, in a way that that. A lot of people have not. I, I do uh, at this point want to just give a shout out to a guy named uh, Douglas Mesner. Um, he has a blog uh, called The Process Is, and he has a great article called Mass Hallucination, Hysteria, and Miracles. That's from July 12th, 2012. Uh, so that was one um, blog post that I consulted in reading um, my article. And um, I mean, you know, to give him credit, he had, you know, basically the same underlying point that I did that mass hallucination just wasn't a um, something with any scientific validity. We will absolutely link that into the show notes uh, so that y'all can can check that out. Great. All right. Well, understanding mass hallucination now, uh, I, I butcher that. I'm going to say that so many times that it, it runs together. Understanding mass hallucination. Thank you. Uh, we'll blame it on being Texan. <laughs> I wanted to get into a bit, just a, a quick history of hallucination theory. Sure. Um, and, and we can, you know, there are probably multiple instances where this has come up, but one of the oldest references that I found to hallucination uh, given uh, very specifically in related to a phenomenon mm-hmm. was, was introduced by David Strauss, mm-hmm. who uh, is a, a, theologian in the late 19th century. He was working through uh, a hypothesis that it tried to explain the resurrection story, uh, the the biblical story of the resurrection as basically a group hallucination mm-hmm. by these these the followers of Jesus. Right. And 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 ultimately evolving into early Christian mythology. So, you know, this was something that was put forward and and the critics the critics went after him at the time because of course that was not the mainstream thinking or perspective or thought that hadn't been considered i would imagine definitely from a widespread perspective uh but but it was something that did uh resonate in the period with that movement towards the scientific materialism that was going on and that that expansion of moving away from supernatural explanations, acceptance of, of theological explanations for these events. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, you know, Strauss brought that up. Um, and, and, and I think that was probably in, I, I don't have it in front of me. It was the late 1860s or 1870s. And that obviously had an influence 
because it comes up again in the 1890s in a reference that you made in, in your article. Mm -hmm. uh, the in, in uh, uh, Gustave Le Bon. Yeah, it's Gustave yep. Le Bon. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Le Bon had a book uh, in 1895 called, just simply called The Crowd. And uh, in that, he posits the existence of kind of a shared hallucination. Um, this was something that kind of had to be suggested to others. So it had to be preceded by some sort of, um, you know, either something like a prophecy or just somebody pointing to the sky and saying, oh, look there. Uh, everyone else in the in the crowd would turn to look and just through the power of suggestion would either uh, kind of hallucinate that thing or see that thing, imagine that they're seeing that thing or else just kind of go with the flow um, and just kind of agree with the crowd and agree that there is something there. Um, so what he was talking about wasn't really a shared, um, wasn't really a mass hallucination in the way we would commonly think about it in the sense that not everybody in that crowd was truly hallucinating that thing. Um, it's more about, um, you know, what people agree they saw and how people's re recollections change over time and how their recollections tend to converge, come together, um, kind of hammer out any inconsistencies and come to agree on one uh, history. You know, that, that's that's a very good point. And I think actually that segues beautifully into... Uh, a discussion that, that should be had uh, that you brought up uh, before we recorded, which is understanding and defining hallucination. Because part of this, this use of mass hallucination is this, it's almost a catch-all. But when we hear some of these, these various uh, explanations, like Strauss and LeBon, they, they actually amount to a, a, at times more of simply a cohesion of witness testimony, right? And that, that, that evolution of things, it, it's, it's not the exact same phenomenon. Uh, it would be good to discuss the, the fact that hallucination is actually a very real thing. And what exactly, what does it mean to hallucinate? Mm -hmm. um, well, again, kind of uh, branching off of what you were talking about uh, w regarding Strauss, uh, you're talking about the rise of kind of naturalistic explanations for things. So before Strauss, people, you know, would have just assumed the supernatural nature um, of these events. And the debate would have been whether it was really from God or whether it was from the devil uh, or there was some sort of supernatural trickery uh, in that way. Um, and there was another guy, a, a French psychiatrist named Jean-Étienne um, Esquirol, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, and in the 1830s, he was kind of the guy to really come up with the definition of hallucination that we would understand today as kind of a naturalistic one. Um, before that, people called what we would call hallucinations now just simply apparitions. So if somebody said, oh, I saw a, um, a ghost walk through the room or I saw, you know, a, a dinosaur, um, that would have just been called an apparition. And, you know, a lot more people, I think, would have assumed that that apparition was truly there in some sort of sense, um, that it was that it was actually a ghost um, or some kind of spiritual substance. At the very least, a, a supernatural occurrence, something that has a, something that actually has occurred externally uh, right. on on this person. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the, the, our understanding of hallucination today is just something that isn't actually there and is only there in someone's mind. Uh, so again, it's it's a, a natural explanation for uh, something that's seemingly so inexplicable, right? And it and it's routed very specifically in term in terms of a a, a neurological neuro uh, neurochemical uh, function right. as right. it's as it's defined, yeah, um, and can be induced, 
can right. be caused uh, and and typically is 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 it is the product of something occurring or something influencing your uh, uh correct neural function right. and uh, but with uh, something really interesting about hallucinations and this is something that comes from the work of uh, Oliver Sacks uh, who has a, a great book just simply called hallucinations um and he does a lot of he you know has a lot of great anecdotes in the book so you know you really have to kind of get into anecdotes to really understand hallucinations because so many of them are so different um but there are commonalities and he does talk about this in the book um but an important point he makes is that hallucinations to the person hallucinating um are absolutely indistinguishable from reality um just in terms of how they look and how vivid they appear and how they really truly appear to be in space um and you know, they have done brain scans of people that are hallucinating. And what you see is that they react to that hallucination exactly as they would react to any other thing that, you know, truly entered physical space, truly entered the room with them. Um, so hallucinations can, you know, trigger shock and can trigger awe, um, can make people surprised, can make people scared in a way that people's own kind of internal imagery cannot. So if I just close my eyes and conjure up the image of a ghost, um, I will not react with fear. Um, and if you did a brain scan of me while I'm imagining this ghost, uh, you would see that I'm not truly afraid or shaken by this experience at all. Whereas a hallucination is something that people, again, truly believe is there and will react to as if it is actually there. And it's only in kind of reasoning and kind of questioning, well, is it is it really likely that there's a giraffe inside my living room right now that they'll kind of realize, well, this must be halluc a hallucination. But otherwise, it is indistinguishable from reality. Well, and that's great. And we, and we've talked about that in a previous episode, actually, before in exploring, um, sleep paralysis and, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that phenomenon and experience and, and delved into a bit of that neuroscience. So this does, it, it parallels it. I mean, it helps to reinforce that those sort of events because, uh, just as in sleep paralysis, I mean, you're describing an event where you are in a, cognitive lucid state at the same time your brain is functioning on in the, in the case of in the case of sleep paralysis it's that you are uh your 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 brain is functioning just like it's in uh in REM sleep uh but it's also operating as though you are completely awake and you get that overlap of of realities and mm -hmm. it's indistinguishable yeah so that's yeah that's Go ahead, right. go ahead. So, yeah. So, you know, hallucinations are something that, uh, you know, uh, we have lots of data for. Uh, there are lots of documented cases of hallucinations. Uh, you know, it does depend very strongly on, on eyewitness testimony, um, if you can call it that, uh, to kind of get at what these things are and how they play out. But again, you know, you can do brain scans of people having hallucinations. There are people with certain symptoms or certain syndromes where they'll have hallucinations quite regularly. Um, the problem with the concept of mass hallucination is that it's just kind of an extrapolation of that, but in a way that doesn't really make sense. Because again, as you said, a hallucination is something that is explained in strictly neurological terms. It's, it's kind of a, I don't know if you could call it a failure, but maybe a, a misfiring of the perceptual system or uh, um, someone's cognitive neurological system. Um, so that is something that necessarily cannot be shared with someone else. You know, uh, someone else can't have the same perceptual failure uh, that I can any more than someone else can have the same dream that I'm having or someone else can conjure up the exact same imagery that I'm conjuring up in my head. Right. And it it that makes so much. I mean, it it that's that seems so common sense. Uh, mm -hmm. But but again, that's under just the context of 
of we've now discussed what and properly defined hallucination, um, which if you don't have that correct context, uh, then perhaps it's 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 not quite so obvious. Um, but you know, and, and and honestly, when we talk about any of these topics, it's the same things that that you explore as well mm-hmm. as 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 we do on on this podcast is just um, anything in the field of what would be considered paranormal, supernatural. Mm-hmm. These events, they are. Um, they're hard to define, they're anomalous, and then they occur very individualistically. Um, they're very unique for each person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it, you know, it, that anecdotal uh, pers- perspective on it um, and, and keeping that as a, as a key factor when discussing it, it it's important. Um, and it doesn't come out of completely out of left field, right? We, we, we've talked about the idea that um hallucination the 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 experience of hallucinating something is real it mm. has occurred it 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 may be in a very specific or 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 defined set of of parameters or phenomenon that are occurring but hallucination does happen and uh mm. you know, there is a history for this and people have been using that so so the term it's not unreasonable that the term, the term floats around but there's been no evidence, right? No one has ever come along and confirmed that mass hallucination can be a thing precisely for what you've talked about. In fact, it's actually, as, as people have explored it, they have determined just what you said, that in a group, everybody is going to experience something, even if it is externally caused mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as something slightly different. So if it doesn't exist, what... Um, What's given legs to this to this idea that mass hallucination is is a valid argument? Well, you explored that again in the article with a few concepts there, uh, and you talk about collective hallucination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other than saying that, well, that's just rewording of the mass hallucination. <laughs> it's it's not correct. I mean, it's that's something different. Yeah, I mean, that's a term introduced by uh, two parapsychologists, uh, sorry, psychologists, um, Leonard Zuzna and Warren Jones, uh, in their book, Anomalistic Psychology, A Study of Magical Thinking. Uh, now, I'm not exactly sure which what research they based this idea on, but they introduced this term collective hallucination. And it's, it's very much like Gustave Le Bon's concept. Um, it's all about expectation um, in order for a crowd, for a group of people to have a collective hallucination, there needs to be some sort of priming. Somebody needs to prime them for it. So, uh, you know, example of, of that would be a, a prophet claiming that on this night, you will see a light in the sky that will do this and that. So people go into an event, uh, watching the skies, waiting for this thing to happen. And at some point, the power of expectation will take over uh, and they will truly believe that they have seen this thing or else just go along with the crowd and agree that they're seeing it even when they're not. Um what makes collective hallucination a, li- a little different is that Zuzna and Jones kind of really focused on the way that that story uh, gets kind of corrected over time. So even if not, even if everyone in the crowd um, didn't really react as if anything was there, or there's a lot of disagreement over whether something was there or not, over time those accounts will tend to converge. Someone will co- come along and start editing them as well. Um, and you will, over time, kind of get this agreement that, yes, this is what happened. And, and, uh, and it, it, of course, it will match the prophecy or the uh, whatever thing they were primed to see. 
Right. And that's the key. And, you know, that's been explored in a lot of other areas as well. Again, just just simply, uh, uh, I guess, in terms of reinforcing that, uh, you, you know, they, when they've come to studies of eyewitness testimony in any situation, eyewitness testimony for crimes mm-hmm. uh, on a crime scene, a, a particular event, the stories that are going to be received may be in general, you know, over overarching, there's going to uh, have a, a general consistency, but everybody focuses on something very specific mm-hmm. based on what they are personally primed, personally predispositioned to to uh, to focus on. A mm-hmm. bank robbery is someone going to focus. One person may focus on the gun that's being held. Another person is going to focus on the mask that was worn. Mm-hmm. Uh, another person isn't even paying attention to it, and they were just too busy looking at the security guard. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so you get a whole slew of, of different events uh, or different descriptions of the exact same event. Mm-hmm. But the very first time it's told, mm-hmm. or if the, if you have the, the witnesses, if they have any opportunity to speak to each other mm-hmm. before telling, before giving their testimony, mm-hmm. those, those stories are going to converge because right. they're going to come together, share those concepts Oh, hey, I didn't see this. I didn't know this. Yeah, that makes sense. That explains that. Oh, you got a better eye, uh, view of this, of that, and it will be incorporated into the story and become the story that, that, that they witnessed, air quotes, is, is that's going to be what they saw mm-hmm. and they will believe it. Right. Um, so, yeah. But, but again, the important thing there is that Susan and Jones aren't really claiming that people actually have mass hallucinations in the sense that all of them will actually hallucinate the exact same thing. It's really more a claim that over time, people will come to agree that they saw the same thing. And so it's really more about the way memory works, because as we know, um, people really don't you don't go back to the actual event when you're remembering something. You're really going back to the last time you retold that event. So over time, the more you retell a story, the more it'll kind of get distorted in your mind or the more you'll, you'll forget about original details and uh, just start kind of repeating things that you told in previous retellings. Uh, so the whole concept of a collective hallucination is just that people come to agree that they saw something um, and not that they will actually all hallucinate the exact same thing. Which means it's not hallucination at all, right? It's it's now the right. term collective is probably a a better term than mass, uh, in terms of describing this because it's about a just that it's a collective recollection of an event or an experience mm-hmm. that becomes cohesive and and right. forms. And uh, in the case of those of of those where it's a an extremely large group, eh, I guess it doesn't even have to be a large group. They're not referring specifically to large groups only. They're just talking about groups in general. Mm -hmm. Um, If they are primed specifically, as you said, uh, uh, someone coming along in a, a profiting capacity Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that, that, or the, the cult leader mindset where those, the, the followers, the group is being shaped very much to, to have a uniform expectation Mm -hmm. of something Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we, I, I guess at that point, that's that, that's that near, almost like cartoony trope of somebody standing outside, pointing up to the sky going, you see that? And someone walking by looking confused until they mm-hmm. look up and they think, well, yeah, I kind of see it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. And then they're both staring up there looking until the entire group, uh, you know, there's a whole herd of people standing up there thinking that they see something mm-hmm. that somebody was pointing at. Um, right. 
And, I, you know, that, yeah. that seems plausible to me. I mean, sure, I think there are like, many instances where that has happened. Calling it a hallucination, as you said, I, I don't know, that seems like a bit of a perversion of the term to me. Right. And, you know, the, the distinction between a, a collective hallucination and a mass hallucination seems like kind of a semantic one to me. I don't know. To me, Zuzna and Jones kind of introducing this, this term, uh, I think, kind of gives people the wrong idea. It makes it seem like there is a basis for the whole concept of a shared hallucination, whether you want to call it a mass or a collective one. Right. Um, and, you, you know, as I mentioned in the article, the online skeptics dictionary came up with an entry for collective hallucinations based on, I'm assuming, based on Zuzna and Jones term. Um, so they seem to get the idea that there is scientific basis to this idea. And of course, they're communicating that to other so-called skeptics and other debunkers. And uh, I think that kind of helps give this term more more life. Right. But right. You know, originally you had asked, so, you know, why does this idea have legs? If there's no scientific basis, why do people believe it? And I think another, you know, I, we just discussed some some reasons right there. But I think another really important one is another one that I mentioned in my article, which I think it's really just a confusion with the term mass hysteria. Um, mass exactly. hysteria is another phenomenon that is is much better understood, much better documented. Um, there are specific examples you can point to, uh, like the dancing plague. Um, where people, again, someone primes a crowd for, for something, suggests something to them. Um, in the case of the dancing plague, someone had st- started dancing in the streets uncontrollably. And over time, more and more people joined the, the group and they all seemed to be taken over by what was called the, the dancing plague or this uncontrollable urge to, to dance. And in some instances, dance until you collapsed and died. Um, so again, there, you know, there is such a thing as mass hysteria and, I think I don't know if anybody really knows exactly how that works, but again, it's it's a lot of suggestion. It's a lot of kind of agreeing with the group, going along with the crowd, going with the flow. Um, but what's important about mass hysteria is that you're not actually hallucinating anything. So people will come to share the same behaviors, for example, dancing or uh, psychosomatic behaviors like believing you have some sort of illness, um, but they won't actually hallucinate anything based on what the crowd is is claiming is there. Um, right, right. And mass hysteria, uh, very much symptomatic emotionally and at times physically. As you said, the dancing plague, uh, I would attribute mass hysteria to the uh, the fervor of the witch trials, the witch hunts mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, in, in, in Salem and well, throughout the uh, throughout the U.S. at the time when uh in the 17th century when when that was occurring mm-hmm. because it was it was simply that uh it was a and i see it defined as a psychogenic illness so it's it's born right it's born of the mind it becomes this this frenzied very emotional based uh reaction to something mm-hmm. could seem very positive uh it could be very negative but it is hysterical mm-hmm. it, to that you know to that it's it conveys that extremely heightened over the top uh, reaction to something. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, so in, in my article, I bring up the example of the uh, Fatima apparitions of 1917 in Portugal. Um, you know, there were, there were several Marian apparitions uh, witnessed by a handful of children. Um, but over time, more and more people came out to see these apparitions because they were kind of occurring regularly once a month. And at the last apparition, there was uh an estimated 70,000 people present. Uh, So, you know, a lot of uh, debunkers have looked at that and said, well, how do we explain this? How do we explain that 70,000 people showed up? And most of them, it seems, although there was never really, you know, a a 
complete collection of witness depositions there. Um, but most people, it seems, agreed that there there were unusual phenomena. The sun turned into a disc and, and danced in the sky. And um, the children, or one of the children at least, claimed to see the Virgin Mary and, and others in the sky. Um, so, you know, you could call that an example of mass hysteria in the sense that, again, maybe not everybody actually saw something or actually hallucinated anything, but maybe over time, people kind of shared their stories. The people that did think they see some, saw something uh, shared their stories and other people tended to agree with that. Or over time, editors kind of, you know, cherry picked certain accounts that, that tended to tell the same story. And over time, you come up with this, this story. So again, you have this, this concept of mass hysteria explaining certain things in history, uh, certain events where large crowds of people uh, tended to, uh, you know, share some odd behavior. But you don't have an example in history where a whole group of people shared some odd hallucination. Um, so I think it's just kind of a colloquial misunderstanding. Um, people are used to hearing the term mass hysteria to explain large group events. And they've heard the term mass hallucination, God knows where, and they confuse them in their mind. And so they think that mass hallucination is a, a, a scientific term to explain um, you know, UFO sightings where there are lots and lots of witnesses or anomalous phenomena where there are lots of witnesses. Yeah, because you're right. Mass hysteria, it's, it's it's been used. It's 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 an understood term. Collective hallucination sounds far too academic of a, of a, of a, right. of a phenomenon to study. Um, and so, yes, mass, mass hysteria and hallucination bring it together and you've got mass hallucination. Right. Uh, that's what has brought that to life. I, I think that that answers that question. Um, but then the key is how, how broadly is this used? Uh, I know when we were talking er early on in terms of planning the episode, it was, let's think through some examples that come to mind, Mm -hmm. uh, for this mass hallucination explanation. You know, what's, what's often received, what do people look at and how is that? And in those instances, I guess most most likely used to simply end the conversation altogether, right? Mm-hmm. Just, just dismiss it as a brick wall, right? Put yeah. up the brick wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know for me, it was, it was, I happened to be thinking about the Phoenix lights when this idea yep. kicked off. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who used the mass hallucination explanation to dismiss the case of the Phoenix lights. Again, this was when I was first really getting into UFOs and I was trying to tell all my friends about them. And yeah, I was getting that brick wall explanation. Uh, another one would be the one I just did a video on, the uh, Hudson Valley UFO sightings. Again, it's right. you know, there are many, many sightings over many years, often with, with crowds of people witnessing. Yeah, it. yeah. And, you know, I, I was thinking of the Washington, D.C. flap, uh, mm-hmm. the big sightings of 1952, where that, they were over over the city for multiple days. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem uh, with that one is that there were UFOs tracked on radar. So if somebody ah, yes right so if somebody throws the mass hallucination explanation at you you have to say well there was clearly something there or some sort of weather phenomenon there in the very least um, that that is one that cannot be explained purely in terms of hallucination right absolutely right. Uh, and it, probably an exact um, match to that of course is is most recently and I just did an episode on it which is the uh, the Nimitz videos the Tic Tac videos that have mm-hmm. come out right uh, you know sure you could. You could argue that uh, an entire fleet of of uh, U.S. Navy personnel out on uh, 
a bunch of aircraft carriers and supporting ships and all that nature simply hallucinated. Maybe a giant methane gas bubble surfaced mm-hmm. and they were all affected. It was swamp right. gas. It was ocean swamp gas. And they saw a weather balloon and completely interpreted it wrong. Mm-hmm. And they saw a ship, except it was on radar. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's 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 when you chip away at that brick wall and they're doing their best to put more bricks right behind it. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. But uh, now the, other, got the one- other brick wall is of course, just that it was a hoax and that's, that's one you can never, that one's kind of harder to, to, you know, present a counter counter argument to because um, you can never really prove someone's intent. Uh, and I mean, if, if it really was a hoax by the radar operators in Washington, DC, then who am I to expose it? You know? Right. It, and it's impressive that they were, were to hoax it and hoax the people that weren't looking at a radar, you know, were looking over the city. Right. But maybe it was a case of, of since that did occur over multiple days, um, I could, if I wanted to play the devil devil's advocate on that, I could take that collective hallucination uh, perspective on it and say, actually, this was over multiple days with the first sightings, other people went outside with an expectation primed for this, saw something similar, saw a spotlight, saw the moon covered in cloud cover, saw something, Mm -hmm. and then developed their their own interpretation of what that was. And perhaps even that collective hallucination of coming to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem with these is is unless it's something that happened absolutely just just once and everybody saw it. Like the Phoenix Lights, well, that did occur over time, mm. but the reports were, and you mentioned that as well, the Phoenix Lights, but the reports were coming in before <clears throat> the news reports were going out. Exactly. So it's it's that. Yeah. Now it, I've got. Yeah, and that that's that's you know it wouldn't fit kind of Lebon's um, concept of a mass hallucination because of course for Lebon it was all about the crowd and it was all about how people kind of tend to behave as a unit when they're in a group like physically in a group you know standing side by side uh, in a town square or something um, in the case of the phoenix lights people weren't doing that people were most people were having these sightings from their own homes from their own backyards individually or or with their own immediate family and no more um, so you have hundreds and hundreds of families who all individually see the same thing that's very different than you know ten thousand people standing in a town square and seeing this thing at the same time because you know in that instance you would at least have an ability for people to talk to each other and, and say things like are you seeing this are you seeing you know don't you see six lights here and and kind of making suggestions to people around them in the, right. in the yeah in the actual case of the phoenix lights that that's not what's what happened and it's not what happened in the case of the washington dc ufo sightings either no. I mean, you or hudson people, valley no exactly yeah. um here's one. I I wanted your perspective on this because I was trying to decide the battle of Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. the sightings over LA in 1942. Right. The, uh, and listeners, if you are not familiar real quickly, 1942, Los Angeles, world war two, an object was spotted over Los Angeles. It was a, a short period of time after a recent, uh, Japanese attack, on an oil refinery in Southern California, uh, tensions were high. This UFO, this unidentified object was seen and uh, lit up the sky. And so the U.S. military proceeded to light up the sky themselves and launched an assault uh, of, of 
thousands of rounds. Yeah. yeah, artillery fire, uh, thousands of rounds of of small small arms fire. It just it lit it up. And and if you if you can go out there and Google Battle of Los Angeles, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes for some for some uh, uh, good imagery on that. Yeah, and there's but, a, great, a great photograph of the object. Re- yes, it's wonderful. It's wonderful, and and people have been trying to explain that for uh several years. I it re- it resurfaced back in the. I believe in the eighties when it really got it there, people started talking about it. Uh, but yes, battle of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Jason, mm-hmm. It, is it a case of mass halluc- mass hallucination or collective hallucination, or is that more prescribed mass hysteria? Hmm, that's a good question. I know that the official explanation is that it is a case of quote unquote war nerves, uh, <laughs> that it was people just being jumpy, as you said. They, you know, they had had experiences with Japanese attacks in in the recent past. Uh, everybody was kind of anticipating another attack on American soil, um, and you know, again, I think the explanation is that somebody pointed and said, "Hey, what's that?" Kind of priming other people to see something. People convinced themselves that they did see something uh, and fired at it for. I think it was about forty five minutes of, of right, fire. Right. Yeah, it was, it was a long time. <laughs> Um, and as you'll see from the photograph, um, all these spotlights are converging on the exact same point and all the fires directed at the exact same point. Um, that's kind of interesting in itself um, that there wasn't, you know, debate on where exactly it was in the sky if there actually was nothing there. Now, is it mass hysteria or, or, or mass hallucination? Well, again, I'm going to say it can't be a mass hallucination because mass hallucinations don't exist. Um, <laughs> um, was it mass hysteria? I think the the official explanation of war nerves fits better with with the idea of of mass hysteria. Uh, it's kind of people um, fitting into a crowd, right? Um, agreeing that something's there, even if they're not necessarily seeing it. But I I suspect, based on the research I've done on the case, that there was something there, and people did see something. I agree. Um, and I and agree. Bruce Bruce Maccabee, who's a ufologist and an optical physicist, did a great analysis on the photograph. Um, you have to be careful with that photograph because the one that's most popular. Like if you just do a Google search of um, Battle of Los Angeles, that photograph, I, I believe it came from the L.A. Times in 1942. That photograph was actually edited. There was actually a photographer who, believe it or not, just painted in an object um, in the point where all the um, spotlight. That's converged. right. That's the that's the yeah. one that, that has the you know, perfect saucer image. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of unbelievable that people would do that. But anyway, I think that was kind of more standard practice in those days. Um, but you can also find the unedited version of that picture. And there's not quite that clear disc in, in, in the point where all the spotlights converge. But what Bruce McAvee showed was that you do actually see spotlights being reflected off of something. Again, if yes. you look at that object, there's, I think maybe about four or five spotlights all pointed up in the sky at this thing. But then you also see a, a spotlight uh, kind of going uh, up diagonally off of the thing. And he says, well, there obviously wasn't a spotlight in the sky being pointed down at the object. So what you're actually seeing is a spotlight from the ground being reflected off of something um, and being reflected off up into the sky. And so I think that proves as well as you can prove based on the evidence we have today that there was actually something there. Well, sir, I I think we've established absolutely that uh, there should be a Think Anomalous uh, video on the Battle there of Los be. Angeles. It, it is, it is a... Uh, Okay, good. I covered on my old channel, UFO Case Review. Okay, Um, okay. One of the last videos I did, um, and it's still up there, you can find it, um, but I will eventually be redoing it for Think Anomalous, no doubt. That is a great case. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, I've had you on a while. I don't want to take all of your evening. 
Uh, so I, I want to transition into this. This is and we could talk about these examples over and over because they're so much fun, and uh, uh, we'll probably end up doing individual episodes for each of these events going forward. You know, their own time because they all deserve that sort of attention. But in mass, these these events occurring, these large mass sightings, mass witnessings uh, of of phenomenon. And I'm keeping it general because it's not just UFOs. It's, it's other paranormal uh, occurrences. It's supernatural occurrences. It's spiritual events. It's these things that large groups of people uh, see mm-hmm. uh, sometimes in mass, sometimes over an extended period of time or a large area. Uh, these sort of sightings, they all get lumped under, under mass hallucination. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where we actually move into the part of the show that that I call uh, colloquially the the theoryology, and this is getting into trying to understanding why a concept or a term or an event really sunk its teeth into the public imagination, uh, into that into that pop culture, that zeitgeist of the mind, and becomes a widely accepted concept, even if it's an unsupported concept like mass hallucination. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think you hit on it earlier in our conversation, discussing w- precisely bringing up the idea of the uh, natural, the naturalistic explanation, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of a natural explanation for events mm-hmm. in the absence of of some sort of obvious, very physical explanation or very obvious basis for for something to have been mistaken, misunderstood, misconstrued, or even perhaps even an obvious cause for the hallucination, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody wants to say it's a hallucination and there needs to be an outside uh, environmental uh, source to it, right? Mm-hmm. Either a either a a drug, a a a psychotic drug, a hallucinogen, a, a hallucinatory uh, inducing substance. Mm-hmm. something chemical uh, or even an event or a priming. Maybe it's a, an extreme brainwashing sort of functionality, something occurring. In the absence of that, people are still going to use the argument for mass hallucination. Well, um, I came across a, a concept and, and we had, we had talked about it some is, is that of, of causal reasoning. And this was actually a painfully clinical discussion paper that I will link everybody as I always do. Uh, but it is a a long read, so we'll just we'll just kind of highlight it. Effectively, it's it's a very extensive study that included both children and adult participants that evaluated the amount at which people judge the reality of an event based on uh, these case events that they used in the study uh, that were classified. Each of these cases classified as either mundane events, improbable, extraordinary, or supernatural. Uh, so again, they were asked based on those types of, of occurrences, how were they how were they judged and in terms of favorability. But what was the most interesting aspect is that these these participants evaluated the natural explanations of things most favorable. And that started early on. So by the time they're eight, seven, eight years old, they're developing a preference, a predilection towards natural explanations uh, over the supernatural ones, 
right? Mm-hmm. So, so you're taking an event and to say that, uh, to say that the, the Battle of Los Angeles is the result of, of somebody of that, you know, an image forming because someone pointed a, a spotlight up at some clouds and someone else pointed another spotlight. And pretty soon everybody's spotlights were pointed up there and it caused a light anomaly bouncing off of clouds ice crystals and stuff up in the atmosphere. And that's where the reflection came from and da 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 yada, yada, yada. Let me explain all of those things away. That was a more favorable explanation to uh, one, that it was something that an object that was in the sky hovering over the area or two, no explanation. We have no idea what that is. They don't like that. The, the, we don't know what it was. Explanation is viewed even less favorably than the supernatural explanation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, to get ultimately, it's that um, this idea that something has uh, caused everyone to imagine seeing or hearing something. It it resonates better in our minds than accepting a paranormal or supernatural event, or even worse, that something just can't be explained. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is? Did you come across? Have you come across that in? in the past looking at some of these cases. I mean that's almost what it seems like with with these with these studies is as people are coming up with an explanation. You know, it's it's collective hallucination or it's it's mass hysteria. They're trying to give a definition of naturalistic explanation to something that just doesn't make sense otherwise. Right. And yeah, I think that what that speaks to um, and it's been my experience that in dealing with um, so-called skeptics and debunkers that they're really kind of working backwards. Um, they're afraid of the implications of acknowledging something like UFOs exist or ghosts are real or reincarnation is real. Um, they don't like where that leads them. They have a naturalistic view of the world. They see things um, mechanically. Uh, there's just really no room for uh, the supernatural, quote unquote, or the paranormal. So when they see supposed evidence of this, uh, like in you know in the case of the Phoenix Lights or the Battle of Los Angeles or what have you, they kind of imagine where accepting that data is going to lead them, and they see that it's going to lead them to the conclusion that well, there's something more going on that we don't understand about the universe. There are some forces that we can't explain, and they're really uncomfortable with that. So then they kind of return to the data right. and go, okay, well, this data just can't be then, or there must be some other explanation for this data. And I think they will accept any explanation that gets them out of believing that UFOs are real or ghosts are real or whatever. And they don't want to say that there is no explanation or we, we can't explain this because that seems to leave the door open to ufologists and other anomalists to kind of mount a case for um, anomalous phenomena or for the paranormal. And they're just very uncomfortable with that. Right. And so that's what I said earlier when I said that, you know, mass hallucinations seem to be this last ditch effort. It seemed to kind of be the last thing you throw out before hitting the floor, um, <laughs> before acknowledging that, you, you know, you have nothing, you have no rebuttal to this argument. Um, it's just kind of a way of, of, of blocking any sort of acknowledgement that this could be real or that there could be that, something else going on. That's when they throw their arms up there and they say, fine, it's aliens. And then they walk off because they right. don't want to talk about it anymore. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and, and there's a reason I just recently did an episode on paradigm shift, mm-hmm. uh, precisely because of, of this perspective, uh, in, in our discussion, uh, that, that knew that that was the kind of a natural, uh, additional topic to, to feed from is that as these anomalous events occur, um, individually, they, they don't change the paradigm. 
that, you know, people work through it. And that's, that's how, that's how scientific exploration works, right? It's, it's, it's reproducibility and, and evaluation and peer review and all of that stuff. Um, and that's even how the social sciences work, right? People, uh, uh, social ideas and opinions form and, and, and bubble around and mix together. And then the things, some things stick and some things don't, but eventually enough of those anomalous events start to build up that, a uh, a crisis occurs mm-hmm. and the paradigm gets broken and at that point uh, a new one has to form it takes a lot of time uh, you know we have cases going back here to the 1500s of strange things in the sky mm-hmm. uh and and uh so so it's it's not uh it's not a quick thing and even if you want to take ufo phenomenon as uh, from its modern perspective, say this, the last 70 years, mm-hmm. right? Since, uh, since, uh, Roswell and, and since the flying saucer incident in, in where is it? Washington or Oregon, um, since the forties, mm-hmm. that's, that's, uh, it's a lot of very anomalous things, a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, photographic evidence, things of that nature. And we're actually starting to see a shift. I, 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 put it out there that I, we may actually have see the beginnings of a crisis. Uh, but, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. And, and you know, that you actually, you actually wrapped up kind of that perspective, summarized it, uh, much better than I do on my own. Cause that's, that's, that's what I wanted to get to there with that study is, is it actually just kind of repeats what you just said that the conclusion drawn was that mundane and improbable and extraordinary events are encountered all the time by both children and adults in their daily lives or in the media, uh, through, uh, in testimony from others. But in terms of investigating how these people make sense of the events, uh, that vary in their possibilities, uh, it, it provided insight into this explanatory framework that all people find most valuable. And the results for that study were indicative that children and adults alike find natural explanations the most effective way to make sense of events. Even mm-hmm. when faced with those extraordinary events, uh, they'd rather, rather than generating a non-natural explanation mm-hmm. um, or accepting no explanation, mm-hmm. they will distort the events to facilitate a natural explanation right. um, or simply dispute the event's occurrence. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's not the the modern skeptical uh, approach to anything, I don't know what is. (laughs) (laughs) It's anything other than something anomalous, anything other than something strange. Well, it's anything that doesn't challenge my worldview. Yes. It's all about defending some sort of worldview. If you have a mechanistic view of the world, a naturalistic view of the world, then everything has to be explained in terms of, of, of natural causes or natural forces. And if there's even one instance of something that can't be explained in terms of natural forces, then that means that your explanatory framework, your entire worldview is inadequate. And uh, people just aren't comfortable with that. No, it, ultimately what it amounts to is they, they literally, I'm going to use the term literally, uh, metaphorically, they, they metaphorically jump to conclusions. Right. Uh, right. They they actually just take a leap to an explanation to fit that worldview, that paradigm, that perspective that they hold mm-hmm. uh, that needs to be that's this this foundational uh, uh, presupposition behind mm-hmm. how they judge everything else. Mm-hmm. So hopefully now 
listeners, as you've heard this discussion, I mean, you can decide where you fall in terms of the hallucination concept and the legitimacy of some of these events that we've mentioned, but you are better informed now regarding the motivations, uh, some of the the psychological uh, preferences that, that you're not even aware of that are occurring as you evaluate that or of those that you're engaging and discussing these top th- you know, topics uh, so that you understand it's it's a perspective coming. It, it's not necessarily that everybody is just being difficult to be difficult. It just, it's rocking that worldview. It's changing that perspective and they're going to look for a natural explanation to something rather than, rather than leave something open-ended or have something uh, as it, an extraordinary explanation found. Jason, this has been fun. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But before we go, I really, do you have any, uh, you have anything else to talk about with Think Anomalous? You got any teasers? You got a, a game plan going forward that we can look forward to? Because now everybody's going to jump on and, and go check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm just in the, the final stages of my next video. It's going to be on the Jackie Hernandez uh, poltergeist or haunting. Uh, this is a case uh, in the San Pedro area, just outside Los Angeles in 1989. Um, awesome yeah it's a it's a great case it's been done by other um it's been done by um sci-fi's paranormal witness uh which is yes yes that's where i'm familiar with it yeah absolutely Um, tons of evidence for that one lots of great video footage it's going to be an awesome video i'll have it out hopefully in about a week a week or so um and i also am considering doing a a podcast of sorts of, of my own um, I'm Woo! not exactly sure. Yeah, uh, I'm not exactly sure what form that's going to take. Uh, I think it'll be kind of a short, maybe 20 to 30 minute thing. Um, I hope to do about one a month. Um, I don't want to commit to too much at the moment, though, because I'm still working out exactly how that's going to work. But I am uh, in general with the channel just trying to put out more content. Uh, the one complaint that everybody seems to have of my, of my channel is that I, I just don't upload many videos. Um, that's my own complaint about my channel as well. Again, I do work a full-time job as a Foley artist. Uh, so I'm currently just trying to hire out more help uh, just to get um, more videos finished and uh, more things up on, on YouTube. And hopefully uh, a podcast will be in there as well. That's great. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, I agree with you. The, the day job gets in the way. And the real key to to accomplish it is to just absolutely get rid of your social life entirely. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I've flirted <laughs> with that a little but uh, no, but it's 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 a lot of fun, and and uh, I know that the the uh, uh, podcasting space would be better for it with that information. But even if not, if you want to focus on the the Think Anomalous uh, channel on YouTube, that's awesome too because those are great. So uh, again, listeners, you'll have the link. Follow through. By the time this is out, the the episode his his video should probably just be a few days away or a little later. Um, or, or it might already be out. So, um, definitely go check it out. Keep an eye out. Uh, otherwise we'll, we'll, uh, let's wrap this up. Jason, thank you again very much for, uh, for for coming. That's been fun. It's, this has been a blast and absolutely as, as, uh, we explore other events, I know that, uh, that you will be welcome back. I'm just hoping, hoping that they've decided, have not decided that, um, you know, you would, do a better hosting duty than I do. Um, you know this content. Uh, it's fun to talk to you about it. You're a wealth of this information. Like I said, we you wrote this thing three years ago, and you're throwing out information on this on these resources, probably with just brushing up on it a little bit. 
uh, like you you just talked about it, just did it last week. So uh, you're a tremendous resource and and a pleasure to talk to. Well, thank you so much. Wow, that was phenomenal. A big thanks to Jason for coming on board. I'm sure you see now why I knew he needed to come on to the show. It was great. I could not have put together and come across so many great ideas uh, that, uh, that he hadn't already discussed and was able to, to present to us and provide for us so much better than I, I think I could have in this topic. Uh, it, it, it was excellent, and it was a pleasure to have him on. Now, make sure you all go check out Think Anomalous uh, on, on YouTube. I'll make sure to have a link in the show notes, along with several of the other things that he's mentioned. As always, thanks again for joining me today. Remember to click that follow or subscribe button so that you do not miss the discussion. If you have any thoughts about what we talked about today, uh, similar experiences, or you've had other conversations about this exact same thing, someone coming along and, and dismissing something as mass hallucination, email me contact at conspiracytheriology.com or find me on the socials at theriologypod. Of course, all the info can be found at conspiracytheriology.com, including how to support the show on Patreon. Also, make sure to support the shows that I, I tack on and trailer in front of the show. I'm going to uh, make a list of them on the website uh, because these, these, uh, these podcasts have become friends of the show. They're great. They're fun shows. They're on my playlist. And I wouldn't advertise them on my podcast if I didn't think you would enjoy them. Music, as always, is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology. <laughs>